Hey everybody, welcome to Bible Banter. It is uh, Luke and Eric with a special guest, Dr. John Roller, um, pastor of First Advent Christian Church in Hickory, North Carolina. I mean, all three of us are in North Carolina. I mean, this is, it's a beautiful state. It's a beautiful place to do ministry and serve God's people. That is for sure. So I think by now everybody's probably realized that we are doing one show a week now. Um, So it's on Tuesdays at two o'clock until uh, three-ish. Um, so please set your reminders and, and join us as we enjoy everybody's uh, contributions and whatnot. And we've really begun to step our game up in our Patreon um, in, in our Bible Banter Club um, membership. So you can join the Banter Club at patreon.com forward slash Bible Banter and you can support the podcast um, so that we can buy Luke a decent microphone because he doesn't have one. Um, so Luke, why do you hate good audio? You know, I, I always hate um, when I vindicate you in this way. But let, let's tell the truth. I actually do have a decent microphone, and I'm too irresponsible to bring it and, mm-hmm. and set it up. So it's actually mm-hmm. worse than not having one. I have one, and I don't use it. Uh, but enough of, of my foibles. Let's get to the main event. John Roller, truly a gentleman and a scholar. It's important because not all gentlemen are scholars, and not all scholars are, gen- are gentlemen. But uh, my friend John is both. So we're very happy to have him here. We're going to be discussing uh, non-credalism today. But before we do that, because we are Bible and banter, we like to have a little bit of banter. So let's uh, do this first. John, I'd like you uh, to tell the audience and Eric one of my favorite stories. You are a pacifist in the truest and purest sense of the word. And um, you, you don't just talk the talk. You have walked the walk. Will you tell us that story? Well, it's all about that. I, I am not a theoretical pacifist that says that no one should ever, you know, exercise violence of any kind. Um, in fact, I subscribe to the statement in A, a Few Good Men, uh, where he says that nice guys like you sleep well at night because rough guys like me defend you. So, or something like that. I don't know the exact quote. So I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, but I'm a personal pacifist. Uh, I was taught from a very young age by my father, who was a pacifist, um, never to never to fight back. And uh, uh, to literally take Jesus's words, if someone hits you on the right cheek, uh, turn to him the other also. Uh, And even when I was an atheist, I continued to subscribe to pacifism. Uh, I may have found another justification for it than what Jesus said, but it was so deeply ingrained in me from the time I was baby. So, uh, and all those years uh, growing up, I I was never involved in a fight. I was never um, hit, even by a bully. when I asked my father what to do about bullies, he said, uh, I'm going to teach you how to run. And so he did. And um, I ran track in high school as a result of having been taught what to do when bullies come after you. Uh, but one day when I was uh, in college, freshman year, uh, 19, a couple of buddies of mine and I were going to go to the beach. And this was back in the day when everybody hitchhiked everywhere, especially college students. So we were out hitchhiking. And uh, the three of us were by the side of the road sticking our thumbs out. And a van came by and uh, passed us by, not unusual. And I was being in a kind of lighthearted mood and I waved at them as they went by. Well, the guys in the van misinterpreted my gesture and they thought I'd shown them my middle finger. And they, <laughs> the van pulled right over the road with screeching brakes. A guy jumped out, came running at me and said, uh, why'd you give me the finger? And he hit me right in the jaw, bam, like that. And I fell over backwards. And my glasses fell off, fell on the side of the road. And I did nothing, which is what my father taught me to do. And the guy stood there just a little stunned. And he said, aren't you going to fight me? 
And I said, no, why should I? And he leaned over and picked up my glasses and kind of folded them together and handed them back to me, turned around and walked back to the van. That was it. <laughs> and by the way, what happened to my two friends when I was attacked like this? One of them went that way, one of them went that way. <laughs> they had taken your father's past the heart. <laughs> you had to run. <laughs> so you would you would not make for a good hockey player then? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, I, I went to a fight once and a hockey game broke out. Yeah, yeah. Well, last night. Um, now I know you're you're a New England guy, isn't that right, John? Not originally. I was I was born oh. in New Jersey, raised in New York City till I was twelve years old, and then I became a New England guy. Oh, okay, okay. So, are you never a hockey fan? Oh uh, yeah. I, I, like I said, I, I went to a fight once and a hockey game broke out. <laughs> well, last night. I mean, all three of us are in are in North Carolina, and the Hurricanes played the Bruins last night, and the Bruins, man, they were looking terrible for about two thirds of that game, and Halfway through the third period, just they dropped four goals on uh, on the Canes and started off by a monster hit. John, I don't think you would have approved of that hit, but it was – I mean, it was a big man running into an even bigger man, and that bigger oh, man – that I, bigger I, I, man I, went good down. Good, damn. You just <laughs> wouldn't have participated in that. <laughs> well, and, John, uh, I, I appreciate that story because I think all too often – um, we can have certain convictions theoretically, but when it comes to practice, uh, we do something different. So uh, let, let, let John be known. He is not a hypocrite. That is for sure. He puts, but he's, uh, also, he's, also not, he's also not the type to impose his own convictions on others, which I think is going to sort of come into a great segue, Luke. If pastoring doesn't work out for you, you can always be a radio, radio host. <laughs> but, I have yeah. been told all my life that I should be a radio host. And uh, in fact, I was when I was at the University of New Hampshire, 1967 to 69. Uh, I, I did the, my turn at, this, at the college radio station and you know, hosted several different shows there. And for those who aren't great at math, John just admitted that he's 49 years old. So now that that's out in the open. Mm, I think you misspelled that I was born in 1949. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the, the other thing I wanted to do with you guys, and in typical fashion, my bookcase is already the subject of ridicule in the comments section, as it should be. Because so, you hate reading. So the other fun thing I wanted Where's the books? <laughs> exactly. What's the point of having a bookshelf if you don't have books? Look at Eric. <laughs> because Tom and Eric have a have a similar uh, uh, philia when it comes to books, I thought it I thought it would be good to share each of us the worst book we've ever read. Not the best, but the worst. So I'm going to go first. This week, uh, my children got a new book about the gingerbread man, and it goes the way the old story goes, where the gingerbread man runs off. He says, "Run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man." And then he gets to the river and he's being chased and there's a fox. And in this version, the fox helps him cross the river and then he runs off into freedom, which is a terrible modification because it defeats the whole point of the fairy tale. It's supposed to be a warning against bad people. So that, that's the worst book I've ever read is the, uh, the new version of Gingerbread Man. Anything come to your minds? I have read uh, so many bad books. I, I've got two. Um, they're both written by the same author. Um, one is called Arminian Theology by Gray, by Roger Olson. Uh, and the other one is Against Calvinism by the same author, with the foreword being from Michael. 
So we made it we made it eight minutes into the show before there were shots across the bow. And uh, I should have known. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I haven't read those books. Why would I read that? <laughs> oh, okay. You said the worst book you've ever read. I was trying to rule out the fact that most of the bad books that I've ever read, I never finished. Now, in the case of Luke and and the Gingerbread Man, you know, it probably didn't take him that long to push himself through. Well, there were there were there were pictures, so it wasn't that hard. I have so many books. I have I have about eight thousand books in my library, and I haven't read most of them. And um, so consequently, I'm trying to thin the herd, and I pick a book off the shelf. It's oh yeah, I always meant to read that. I never read it. And um, but it used to be that you know, books were a valuable, valuable treasure to me. And even if I didn't like a book, I would think about, well, how can I sell it or, you know, um, you know, get somebody somebody to take it off my hands. I could never, ever bring myself to literally throw a book in the trash. But lately I've been teaching myself to do that. And so there are a couple of books that I pushed myself all the way through to the end and then said it never got any better. I should have thrown this away when it started because I knew it was going to turn out bad. Um, one of which uh, was a book called The Blood of the Lamb. I don't remember the author's name. What I do remember about the author's name is that it wasn't even really his name. It was a pseudonym. Uh, it was two guys that wrote the book together and they made up a name to go together. That was one. That was one worst book I ever finished, but I did throw it away. And only just yesterday, I threw away a classic science fiction book that I had never read. And I'm a big science fiction fan, space travel, everything along that line. I'd never read this book. I'd heard about it ever since it came out. I've had a copy for decades. I finally decided to read it. And I didn't get but 60% of the way through before I said, I am not going to force myself to read this trash anymore. And I put it where it belonged, and it was Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. Don't read it. Don't bother with it. It's not worth it. And if you want to buy if you want to read a good book, you can pick up my book now on yes. Amazon. Go teach all the things to those that Jesus commands us to reach. And a second one is coming out really soon. Good. So. Now, John, I know you I know you read a lot. The other thing I guess people should know about you before we get into the uh the subject today is you are a very prolific writer so is there anything you you've written I, john i've been on your website you wrote I, a lot i write small stuff i've never written a book length book is is there anything neither have i <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> didn't I've stop never, me from publishing it <laughs> never published either <laughs> john is there anything you've written recently you want to plug before we get into the subject today. No, I did most of my writing a long time ago. I haven't done anything recently, uh, except constantly, constantly updating my my uh, doctoral thesis, which is the Doctrine of Immortality in the Early Church, which is my bestseller. Um, it is the only one that I've actually sold copies of, uh, but now I give it away free on the website, um, johnroller.com. And, um, you know, you click through all the buttons until you eventually get there and you can have one copy for free. Uh, and I recently added um, an appendix to it to uh, oh, to cover a book that uh, that didn't really meet the qualifications for inclusion in the book, but it was so relevant to it that I wanted to mention it. Good. So I added a chapter. Good. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into the subject today, which is creedalism. 
It's a very relevant subject for our denomination. Uh, it's something that Eric's very passionate about, and it's something that John is very passionate about, although in opposite directions. And so what we're going to try to do is to take some time at the beginning to ask John some questions and come to a proper understanding of his position. And then uh, with charity, but also with vigor, toward the end, we're going we're gonna to fight it out a little bit and have some disagreement. Wait, so why, so why are you asking? You're asking uh, questions of John, but you're not going to ask questions of me of an opposing view? Can, can we at least begin with the guest? Can we start with the person who? Usually in a debate, if you wanted to call it that, the pro side goes first. Well, this isn't a formal debate, and uh, <laughs> I, get from, I get to hear from Eric all the time. I want to hear from you. Okay. So, let, let's start with this, and don't don't worry about trying to present an argument. Just tell us, in your personal experience, kind of how you came to non-credalism and why you think it matters so much to you. Start we were talking a little bit before the show actually started about um, – how before I was involved with the Advent Christian Church in a ministerial capacity, um, I, I had been a member of a Baptist church, and um, yet I had had lots of opportunities and invitations that I, that I took to, uh, to counsel and teach um, Bible and so on uh, at Advent Christian campgrounds, um, particularly in the New England area, which is probably where Eric had got that impression that I was a New Englander. Um, and that could never have happened if the Advent Christian Church had been creedal, uh, because at the time I didn't hold to some of the key Advent Christian doctrines. Um, but actually, it was the exposure that I got to those doctrines by doing that that led me to study on my own and come to the conclusion that I agreed with the Advent Christians on some of the areas that were doctrinally um, distinctive to them and that were different from what I had had uh, before. And I, I, I will say quickly about being a Baptist is that I didn't grow up a Baptist or anything like that. I had been an atheist when I was in high school and I got saved in a Baptist church when I was 19. And this transition already began by the time I was 20 and 21. So I wasn't a hardcore committed Baptist. It was a case of um, it was that I got saved in. And uh, uh, but when I when I got saved in this Baptist church, uh, they were in contact. This was youth groups we're talking about. They were in contact with youth groups from several other different evangelical churches in the area. So we had things like uh, Sunday Night Sing inspirations and things like that, sort of like what you call a Fifth Sunday Sing uh, up there in Lenore. Um, and, you know, we, we had Baptists, we had uh, Congregationalists, uh, Nazarenes, Pentecostals, Advent Christians, kids all mingling together and worshiping the Lord together, having a good time. But you would hear different, you know, of their preachers and their youth leaders saying things differently, talk, you know, having different areas and usually just bantering, usually just kidding. You know, um, the, the Nazarenes, for instance. Um, believed in um, instantaneous sanctification. You come to the altar, you pray, and you get cleansed of all sin, and then you live sinlessly until the next time you fall, and then you need to go to the altar again. So, you know, there was banter about that. There was kidding about, well, you know, so-and-so's a Nazarene, they better go up the altar after what you just said, you know, <laughs> like that. And, um, you know, just all in good fun. And and by by watching that, Early on in my experience as a Christian, you know, I began to develop the idea in the back of my head that uh, Christianity is not 
a monolithic faith where everybody is the same. It's a diverse community where different people who are equally committed to their personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ are expressing it in a number of different areas, particularly in the areas of doctrine and sometimes even in the cases of lifestyle. There were, mm -hmm. you know, there were there were kids who would dance and there were kids who wouldn't dance, depending on their um, you know, denominational background or their personal beliefs. So yeah. then I went off to a Christian college that was not affiliated with a denomination. It's Gordon College in Massachusetts, not Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, but the Gordon College. And same situation. There was there was no one denomination that had more than 29% of the student body. That was, uh, I think that was the Presbyterians. And, uh, but then there was all these different Baptist groups and all these other different groups. And we're all sitting in, in college classes together, discussing doctrine, learning biblical theology together, and with, yet with diverse interpretations. And I learned to distinguish between um, interpretations that seemed to me were not based on the Bible but rather based on some other presupposition versus interpretations that were based on the Bible and may actually have different approaches just because of, well, you see this in the Bible and I see that in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So, so I, was, I was a non-credalist before I was an Advent Christian. Right. So now let, let's sort of bring this to uh, the, the current situation in which our denomination finds ourselves. I don't want you to try to speak for the non-credalists. I don't think you would ever presume to do that. But if you wouldn't mind giving just sort of a broad sense of, A, why you think non-credalism is um, as strong as it is in our denomination, because while it may not be a lot of people, it's a lot of strong voices, and B, why you think it's valuable. Okay. Uh, why it's so strong is because of history. You have to go back to the founders of the Avon Christian denomination in the 1850s and 1860s. Mm -hmm. When the denomination really was just a bunch of independent local churches um, that comprised people who had mostly been kicked out of or excommunicated from other denominational churches because of their belief in the soon coming of Christ. And they are now banding together in these little local churches. And even within their local churches, they're all coming from this diversity of backgrounds. So they're having to figure out, well, you know, we're, we're a church because we've got one thing in common. We're all looking forward to Jesus coming any day now. But, uh, you know, how are we going to do communion? How are we going to do baptism? How are we going to do, uh, you know, you name it uh, in, our, in our local church life, let alone how are we going to connect with other similar churches throughout the country? And... And that that system was not built from the top down. It was it was, you know, when John Wesley formed the Methodist Church, it was built from the top down. John Wesley organized the the Methodist Society, and then he branched out into franchises. The Avon Christian Church was exactly the opposite. These local churches grew up independently, and then clusters of them that happened to be located near each other geographically would band together to form a conference like what we call the Piedmont Conference mm -hmm. in Western North Carolina. And they give themselves a geographical boundary and say all the like-minded churches that, you know, that aren't part of some other denomination and want to be part of this one, you can join the Piedmont Conference. And then the right. Piedmont Conference would have to get together and confer to decide what it stood for and what it was going to do. 
And eventually these conferences were organized into kind of regional associations like Eastern Regional Association, Southern Advent Christian Association, and so on. And, and it took a long time for the general conference to develop into any kind of institution. Mm -hmm. And when it did, the people who were involved with it at that level realized that they were the ones that the people who were involved in at the general conference level were the ones who were able to take a big picture view and look out over the whole country and see the fact that all these different churches were different that they were not all like little copies of each other and so if we're going to say anything that's going to speak for the whole group it has to be very um very generic and very low-key mm -hmm. so so by 1900 they had put together a document that they called the declaration of principles mm -hmm. and without even including it in the declaration itself they had made a, a statement about the declaration right the declaration was not to be taken to be a statement of faith analogous to, for example, the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Baptist Statement of Faith um, or the uh, 39 Articles of the Episcopal Church or anything like that. This is not going to be that. The Declaration of Principles was just going to be a kind of low-key summary of what could be agreed on by so large a group of people as 30,000 people. Yeah. <laughs> Not a very huge number by today's standards, but scattered all over the United States and Canada in small groups. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that they did was in, in developing the statement, they were very careful to write it in ways that would not exclude anybody who had a different opinion. Yeah. And even, even in doing so, they wanted to include what they considered to be their distinctives because they wanted the statement the Declaration of Principles, they wanted it to be, uh, as I say, not a creed, but a summary, but a summary not of the whole Christian world's view right. of anything, but a summary of this particular group. They wanted it to be a, a group identity thing. Yeah. They wanted to yeah. be able to say, John, you can pause, tell pause for, from somebody else. Pause for a minute. I have a question. Are you able to see the comments? Because we like to interact with the comments as they happen live. You should see on your screen there's a there's a thing that says private chat and a thing that says comments. You're going to want to click on the side that says comments because then you can sort of see as people respond as we're talking. Wow. Yeah. Comments. Yeah. Wow. So, so you will be you will be very outnumbered today as a non credulous I can tell you at least one person, Brian Falcon, will be in your camp. Uh, now, uh, sorry, I didn't see that. But, uh, you know, John said something um, very is really helping me reframe something that uh, that I've been thinking about for a long time. And, and Luke, I, I know we have not talked about this on the podcast. We might've talked, spoken about this in private. I know I have with some of the viewers um, who, are, who are watching, um, you know, some of the guys that, that I talk to on a regular basis, but I've really tried to struggle to figure out how we, um, you know, for, for those who, who, are more creedal, more confessional in, in their beliefs and think that it's important um, and still remain Advent Christian, you know, the way that, that John describes how the denomination was founded as independent churches and then creating these conferences of like-minded churches based on geography, 
it almost lends itself in my mind and and i'm just thinking out loud as i'm as these thoughts are developing but for those who who do wish to remain advent christian but have um greater ordination standards as far as like um or different ordination standards that still fall under the 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 general ordination standards that the denomination is trying to get us to 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 adopt but maybe they're just uh, more refined, you know, standards that uh, it would be a okay for a local church or pastors to effectively pull out of their geographical conference and establish a theological conference um, nationally, if they wanted to um, and appeal to try to join the Everett Christian General Conference through that conference. I mean, that makes a lot of a lot of sense to me based on what John had just shared. Now, John, before before you respond, I just want to make sure we finish. And I, I, I'm sure you might have a response first. You gave us a really good overview of the history of how non-credalism sort of became a part of Evan of Evan Christianity. But just one more question, then we'll open things up a little more. Why do you think it should stay that way? Why do you think we should continue in that history? Okay, um, just because of the fact that any proposed creed, uh, if it gets at all detailed, is going to end up um, disagreeing with what some of the people out there believe. Uh, if, in other words, the, the, the Declaration of Principles was written in such a way that hardly anybody would disagree with it, but it's okay if you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was I was going to get to to the point of an illustration about that because um, when I first came into the Advent Christian Church after having been a Baptist and after having ministered in Advent Christian churches, uh, one of the things I wanted to know was okay I'm going to be a pastor of one of these churches I mean I can I can work as a pastor anywhere just you know pay me my salary and I'll do the job but uh, if you've got any restrictions on what I'm allowed to preach or not I'd like to see these oh no we have no restrictions we're a non-credal church well that's cool you know. But do you have any kind of statement of what you most of you believe? Yeah, we have the Declaration of Principles. Look at that. And the Declaration of Principles, by the way, is not a creed, and you're free to disagree with it. So I look down through and I go, oh, hmm, I disagree with that. I disagree with that. I disagree with that. There's no problem. No problem. You can still be here. So, could it, so John, would you, would you say that a Muslim could be ordained as a pastor then in our churches? Absolutely not. Because... The very first item in the Declaration of Principles, and the one that the most Advent Christians agree with, is but it's non-binding. Believe that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. Mm-hmm. Oh, a Muslim, well, I, a Muslim doesn't believe that. Hold on, but, I, I gotta, a lot, oh, but a lot of Advent Christians don't believe that as well. Pause, pause, not pause, very pause. many. Not very many. But some not do. Many. But to but to but to acknowledge but to acknowledge that the Declaration of Principles are non-binding. That you can that you can disagree even vehemently with more than half, if not all, is to suggest that you do not have to be a Christian to be an Advent Christian. It may suggest that, but I've I've never seen it happen in practice. I think it does more than suggest it. I think I think just based on based on how you've presented it, John, it certainly um it, it, it I mean I mean it certainly does more than suggest that. It allows it. All right, let me let me let me let me ask your original question. Okay, a Muslim could become the pastor of an Advent Christian church if the members of that Advent Christian church decided to call him to be. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Because a Baptist can become right. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. Yeah. yeah, so I, I don't. And disagree. what happened to me after I became the pastor of that Evan Christian Church? Well, I studied studying Evan Christian doctrine to the point where I came to believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and along with it, I came to I came to see that for me the value of the non creedalism that it made me who wasn't you know DNA wise Advent Christian it made me able to minister within that context able to learn from that context and able to teach others that very context so I think the Muslim example that you bring up is a kind of straw man um, because I don't think there's any likelihood that a Muslim would want to be a pastor of an Advent Christian church and I don't think there's any likelihood that any Advent Christian church would want a Muslim to be their pastor. So I think you built a straw man there. Um, but, you know, if, if you want to force me to my knee here and say, yeah, it's possible, anything's possible. I, I think I, I learned about Advent Christians well, is that there's I, you, know, I, you can make that applies across the board to all Advent Christians. Hold, hold on, hold on. We're getting card ahead of the horse a little bit here. Okay. Okay. So, so we're... It, it, I, I am looking forward to the back and forth, but I want to make sure we're not talking past each other. And mm-hmm. so uh, I, I think Eric's example had some validity, but let's actually talk about what's at the heart of this controversy, because what, what we're really here fighting about is Trinitarianism. I mean, that's that's, really? that's what the no, fight I don't is. I, isn't Trinitarianism settled? Oh, wait, well, it's not settled because it's not binding. Hold on. So and, and, for, and for those and for those. I'm of one of them, and I mean this in, in the most loving sense possible. If you reject the the true nature of Christ, you reject Christ, and by rejecting Christ, you can't call yourself. I can't confidently call someone a brother in the Lord if they reject um, Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of Man. Whoa, whoa, um, whoa, whoa, whoa. I cannot. I've never heard a single Advent Christian reject Jesus as the Son of God. Well, when you you do reject him as fully God and fully man when you suggest that I, I, he rephrased, is, it. I rephrased it. That's fine. Um, when you suggest and that's exactly what non-Trinitarians say he is. Excuse me? You said if you reject Jesus as the son of God and that's exactly who non-Trinitarian Advent Christians say that Jesus is. Jesus mm-hmm. is the son of God. That's exactly what they say. Right. Well, I'm, I'm trying to get to, to my point, John, um, is that if if you reject the divine nature, because many of them do do reject the divine nature of God. Oh, and and many, many fall into that into the heresy of modalism where God, you know, God oh, is, is one. So they're all, all right. Apparently. Pause, pause. Yeah, that's what they do because they think that's the logical consequence of it. That's not what they say themselves. So this is this is where this is where we are we are going to have a challenge of how do we talk about this without talking past each other? Because mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say that we're operating under sort of two different sets of fundamental assumptions. And what's 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 interesting is I'm sure John. I mean, I can say this with confidence from conversations I've had with you. If you were to lay out your personal beliefs. You come out Trinitarian, and so we need to make sure we need to make sure that we're that we're arguing about the same things. Sure. So let, let me ask both of you a question, a series of questions, okay? And hopefully this will help us sort of start to get down, so that when we do start fighting, it's about the what's at the heart of this disagreement rather than around the edges. 
Okay, so I'll, I'll start with Eric and then I'll ask John a series of questions. Eric, um, do you believe in a Trinitarian view of God? Yes. Okay. John, do you believe in a Trinitarian view of God? Yes. Okay. Eric, um, what does that mean? And I'm not asking for a whole explosive, you know, uh, 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 tome on the Trinity. I just mean, what is the essential fundamental truths of that view that make it Trinitarian? Co-eternal, co-equal, three in one. Okay. John, how would you describe a Trinitarian view of God? The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, there is only one God. Okay. Good. Which I affirm. I wholeheartedly yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Eric, do you think that someone who rejects a Trinitarian view of God, right, is a Christian in your in your understanding? Not what they call themselves, but in your understanding. Is there room for nuance? Yes. Uh, no. However, I do think that God can um, save people with imperfect theology. Okay. Okay. John, same question. Do you think someone who rejects a Trinitarian view of God, do you consider them a Christian? I'm not asking if they consider themselves. I'm asking, do you consider them Christian? Your, your question is too broad because there are lots of people who don't accept a Trinitarian view of God including, as you mentioned, Muslims. Mm-hmm. Muslims are not Christians. Right. But there are Christians who do not accept the Trinitarian view of God. Okay, okay, good. So we're, we're, start, we're starting to get to the heart of the disagreement here. This is good. Um, Eric, what makes someone a Christian? Having been saved by the work of Christ. Okay. John, what makes someone a Christian? Uh, I want to interrupt here by telling you that I'm going to do something very Advent Christian. Okay. <laughs> quote a Bible verse. Okay. That's one. That, when when I was trying to talk about Article One of the Declaration of Principles, what makes somebody an Advent Christian, an Advent Christian, is that when you ask them a question, they quote you a Bible verse. So you're asking me, as an Advent Christian, you're asking me, how does someone become a Christian? What makes someone a Christian? And my answer is Romans ten nine. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Okay. Okay. Good. Now, let's let's stay. Let's keep narrowing. Um, Eric, let's take in into account uh, this idea that John John has just brought up, and you you sort of emphasize God's saving work. John emphasized um, the repentance mm-hmm. and the faith. I, I, I think we can say those things coincide with each other, that even if you're going to say God's the one who produces them, that that is the fruit of the regeneration. That, But you that also God. have to think of like when Paul writes those words to confess Jesus as Lord, what does that mean? That is okay, a contradiction to um, Caesar. Uh, what's, what's the Latin term? Uh, Caesar is Lord. I'm, I, was trying, I was trying to impress people with the Latin, but I forgot it. So, um, they were forced to say Caesar is Lord in, in stark contradiction and in the face of persecution were instead called by the Apostle Paul, and we continue to do this today, to refer to Jesus as Lord. Now, what does that mean? That means that he is our sovereign king, that we belong to him, that we are obedient and loving to him. Our allegiance first and foremost and unequivocally is to christ jesus now why might that be because he is 
uh, divine, right? He is divine and co-equal and co-eternal with God or as God. He is okay, co-equal so with the Father and the Spirit. Eric pre-answered the question I was going to ask, which is what does it mean to confess Christ as Lord? So now, John, same question. What does Paul mean when he says that? Well, when I'm asking myself what does a scripture verse mean, I go to the context. And interestingly, I find that the context in Romans chapter 10 has nothing to do with Caesar, has nothing to do with the statement that uh, that Christians were being um, challenged with, that they should say Caesar is Lord. It actually has all to do with obeying the Mosaic law. And Paul, in that context, says to a largely Jewish audience, uh-uh, it isn't about obeying the Mosaic law. If you confess Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You don't have to be obedient to the Jewish law. That's the context in Revelation chapter 10. So uh, I agree with what Eric said about the conflict between Kaiser Kurios and Jesus Kurios. Mm -hmm. That was the issue for second century Christians in particular, but it was not what Paul was writing about. So, so let me, let, let me, um, good. We're, we're, again, we're continuing to sort of find where the disagreement is. So let me ask this. Um, Eric, do you believe that the Bible is um, the Word of God? Yes. Okay. John, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Yes. Okay. Eric, what does that mean? It means that the, um, the Bible is uh, breathed out, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, it is breathed out by God, used for uh, or is profitable for teaching, correction, rebuking, um, training in righteousness. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the word of God. Okay. John, what, what does that mean when you say the Bible is the word of God? He quoted my Bible verse. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really God's Bible, but... but to get, yeah, but to get very definitional, though, I'm, I'm a professor, and I would go back and teach my entire uh, biblical origins course answer that question and talk about things like the original manuscripts um, as written by the uh, biblical authors under the mm -hmm. inspiration of the Holy Spirit according to second Peter 121 yeah. um, and I would point out that the Bible is not the book that you hold in your hands in English but the Bible is the original one that nobody can hold in their hands well, well, Eric and I had the Eric and I had this had this fight last week, and I probably would say it more like you do, and he would reject it. But carry on. We don't have time. So when I finally get back with all of that, and I and I get to this, and I have to say imaginary Bible. You have to imagine this Bible because nobody can actually see one. And then what I want to say by it, it is the word of God is that every word in there mm -hmm. is in there exactly because God wanted it to be. In other words, no mistakes were made by the human authors in correctly transcribing God's intended message. Good. Now, uh, Eric, don't reply yet. I think I think Brian's maybe uh, uh, coming to the conclusion before we've asked all the questions. We'll 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 continue asking despite his uh, his declaration of a winner. Eric, does the Bible, the Word of God, clearly teach the divine nature of Christ? Yes. Okay. John, does the Bible clearly teach the divine nature of Christ? Yes, but... Oh, my God. You know what? I, a wise person once told me, uh, anything, when, once someone says, but, disregard everything they do. <laughs> no, but 
my non-Trinitarian friends would also agree to that statement as phrased. Okay, so this, so now we're gonna we're gonna keep digging further, Eric. What is the divine nature of Christ? What is it? What does it mean? What does someone who believes that, according to Scripture, believe? It means that Christ is fully and truly God in absolutely every single way. Mm -hmm. John, same question. What does it not mean? What does it, it does not mean that Jesus is God the Father. Mm -hmm. It right. does not mean that the Holy Spirit is Jesus or that the Holy Spirit is God the Father. Right. Uh, the statement that, that uh, these three are one does not mean that they have no distinct personalities of their own. We it sounds kind of cradle to me. Three? Like <laughs> you asked me what I believe. <laughs> there are three distinct personalities who comprise the being of God. Mm -hmm. And Ooh. that's my view. Yes. But I don't hold that everybody has to agree with me because I think that there's room in the Bible for interpreting biblical texts differently than I have done. Okay, good. So now, John, you, you've gotten to, I think, one of the issues at the heart of this, which has to do with semantics versus theology. And it's difficult because in some ways, all of theology is semantics. It's the application of words and categories. But, but let, let's, um, let's talk about this for a moment. Because this is this is where we need to we need to recognize that amongst non-credalists in the denomination, not everyone is exactly the same. So there 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 are there are some non-credalists like you, John, who are Trinitarians who don't want a binding uh, creator statement of faith to exclude right. others. Right? Then there are on the other extreme end, I would say there are the people who just flatly reject um, the pre-existence of Christ. They would say that he's a, a whether whatever whatever other view you want to take, um, he the bef before, yeah they they just they just reject the divine nature. This is then, the time, this is the first time you brought up the word preexistence now. Okay, so we're we're, we're about, that's another whole issue. We're getting we're getting into that next, but but so do you affirm the preexistence of Christ? I do, oh. but I don't but I don't hold that it's of the level of importance to distinguish a person who doesn't hold it as being a non-Christian. Okay, good. We're going to we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Hang on. We got to deal with this first. Patience. Patience, my friend. Okay. We got to deal with this first. There's also a category of people who seem to believe trinitarian theology, but they don't use our terms, right? So they they don't they don't use the same terminology. And so to your point, John, I think you could say they believe the same things, but they don't use the same words. So let me ask Eric a question that I know he's going to answer very different than you will, John. Um, do the words matter, Eric, to the point to the extent that they need to use yours, or if they generally agree with what you believe but use different language, is that okay? Uh, is it okay? Both, to believe both, are, both of your statements that you just asked me to answer can be both a yes. So I'll say yes okay. to both of those questions. Okay. Okay. I think I think the language is incredibly important. Okay. Um, I think it is helpful. I think a rejection of the language is to reject the his the. It's almost like a, a um, 
Like we know better today than they knew 500 years ago or 2000 years ago. I, I think there's kind of a level of arrogance with that. Okay. Um, but I, I do think the language is important, but not necessary. So I, okay. I think, you know, someone can believe in the Trinity without using the term and that, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely okay with, I affirm them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay. Would you give a similar answer, John, that it's it's the substance and not the words themselves? That oh, absolutely. First of all, the English words themselves carry absolutely no value. Any any words that are, <laughs> are the Hebrew and Aramaic words. <laughs> they, they, words have no value. <laughs> they have they're not they're not essential. English. English words are not essential to this. But you would but you would affirm that those English words carry meaning. Uh, to English people, and a lot of times um, they carry false connotations. Okay. And, uh, and one of my favorites is the English word hell, which is so important in Advent Christian theology, right. which is a, a horrible word because it's been used by English translators to translate three entirely different and completely conceptually different meanings from different Greek words. Now, if the English people can do that to, to the Bible, you have to be very careful with what English people do to theology. So, sure, sure. yes, uh, yes, uh, it is possible to maintain the beliefs without using the same words, obviously, because there are people in other countries who use the, have the same beliefs and who don't use our English words. But worse than that, Eric, would you say that the Apostle Paul believed in the Trinity? Yes. He never once used that word. Not even in an English translation, and certainly not in the Greek original. I mean, okay. Well, let me let me let me interject. Yeah, I mean, so he also right? use a so just because someone doesn't use a specific term doesn't mean that that term that we use today or they used in the Latin in the first few hundred years um, doesn't mean that the truth that is that correlates to that word is untrue. Absolutely. Um, I, I never suggest otherwise. It was an answer to Luke's question. Luke's question was, can people believe in the doctrine without utilizing the words? And I used Paul as an illustration. Okay. Okay. Okay, good. So now let's let's start getting to the nitty-gritty. And I appreciate Meredith's remark. To be defining terms is the beginning of any debate. And this is why I'm being a little bit forceful today with both of you. Because I know you both have strong views on this, and rightly so, but we need to make sure that we're not ships passing in the night, which is often what happens when we don't define. The yeah, well, well, look, hey, I just want to point this out. I mean, we're getting to the conclusion of the show, and you really haven't given us the opportunity to talk about a positive form of, of creedalism and confessions. Um, yeah, yeah, we're, we're 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 very close. There's there's one there's one more thing that John really sort of got down to that i think is worth discussing and then we'll open things up a bit and come on we're not near the end of the show can we get rid of this we're going an hour nonsense and we've never done it it's not going to happen people don't know what they're getting into when they turn on this show. listen i had a late night watching hockey last night okay. <laughs> uh, um eric does the bible teach that the son of god pre-existed the incarnation yes okay john john say one, one. I think that it's possible for someone to read the Bible and come to that conclusion. I think, probably it's also, I think it's also possible for someone to read the Bible and not come to that conclusion. Okay, we, we've done it. We have, we have come to something that's actually at the heart of this disagreement. Okay. Um, so let's, um, 
let's talk about this for a little while. And then Eric, we are going to get to the positive affirmation of, of creedalism. But I, actually have a, I have a better example. I have a, I have a better example, Luke. Um, okay. Not that you're not doing a great job. I just think that this really gets to, to, to something significant because, okay, I understand John's perspective. And I think the audience does that, you know, he believes and many others believe that someone can read the scriptures and believe that Jesus um, is not pre-incarnate, right? There was no pre-incarnate Jesus. Um, you know, John and I obviously agree that he that he was pre or is pre-incarnate, was pre-incarnate. I don't know. I'm not an English major. I, I, not, you know. I mean, um, it's not in yeah. the Bible, but I agree with this. So, so I would say this. How do you, because we have a strong um, anti-LGBTQ statement that was passed at our last general conference. And so if, if so, there are many that even consider themselves evangelicals that consider um, homosexuality to be acceptable, that there are other denominations that consider themselves evangelicals, can, the evangelical Lutheran church to be one of them. Um, they, they ordain homosexual clergy. So there are a lot of these affirmations. Um, they call themselves welcome and affirming churches i like to consider ourselves welcome and affirming we welcome anyone and affirm uh your total depravity but um can, do you, if someone comes to you and says well listen i read the bible I'm a, i i believe in all the declaration of principles but i believe that that god has ordained sexuality um in a way that allows for homosexual relationships i mean as advent christians who are we to suggest that they're wrong. We would go to the Bible and find the Bible verses that describe homosexual behavior and connect it with the term that's translated in English as abomination. And we would say, we don't think that your conclusion that this behavior is acceptable to God is biblically supportable. That's what yeah. I would say as an Christian. That's great. So then, John, why can't we do the same thing with the whole Gospel of John, which has all sorts of statements about not just the divinity in some broad, unclear, vague sense, but the actual pre-existence of the Son of God? How? Why can we not go to John and come and say the same thing to those who reject that doctrine? Yeah, possibly partly because we can't base our entire doctrine on one verse or one book of the Bible. We have to look at the entire Bible context. So, you know, to someone like me who would say, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Just take that last phrase, the Word was God, and draw it up on a mathematical A equals B. The Word equals God. Then move to John 1, 14, where it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm -hmm. And I, I tell my non-Trinitarian friends every time, how do you get out of God became flesh and dwelt among us? You agree that it's referring to Jesus, right? Then Jesus is God. And some of my non-Trinitarian friends are pretty clever. One of them said, but what do you do with the book of Hebrews, which quotes the book of Psalms and says, to which of the angels did God ever say, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee? Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, it's talking, uh, the Father is talking to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so on what day was that spoken? I don't, I don't know if, I, I feel like that sort of skirts around 
Yeah, this isn't getting John. But so John, the same thing could be said about someone who's LGBTQ affirmed. A Bible verse. Hold, hold on, hold on. I have a Bible verse. All right, let, let John, John, make your point, and then I want to let Eric respond. So you, my point is, Advent Christians do theology by Bible verses. Everybody does theology by Bible verses. No, 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 no. The thing that people don't do theology by Bible verses is to is to throw out the last fifteen hundred years of scholarship. Um, I mean that is that is intellectual snobbery to set suggest that the the key theologians throughout history have done such from a purely philosophical. Uh, did that they threw away all their commentaries they threw away all their philosophy books they threw away the scholastics from the middle there was a strong sense of of anti-intellectualism there was a i mean uh, there was a strong sense of anti-intellectualism um in the 1800s and it's one of the reasons why the advent christians you know and as a populist religion were able to spread so quickly is because they ordained clergy with no formal training um, without, uh, you know, they even rege- they looked at pastors that had formal training as people to be critical of and suspicious of. I've even heard pastors in our denomination suggest that in certain areas of the country, including North Carolina, that if you have a seminary degree, you're looked at with suspicion. Um, that is in every way intellectual snobbery and to suggest that that we are the only ones who do theology by Bible verses is is crazy. Uh, we never said we were the only ones. We just said we're ones who do that. Well, Ethnic Christians never claim to be the only Christians. So what do you do with the individual who's trying to be ordained in their gay? Certain conclusions by their own study of the Bible. John, you, the way that you just shared, this is the these are the verses I'm going to go to. These are the verses they're going to share. And then, and then from there, we depart ways and go, listen, we're still brothers in Christ, and I will still affirm you into ministry. I'll still affirm you as a member of my church. But when the, when the issue is different, and it's LGBTQ stuff, and they have their own Bible verses, trust, I've had these conversations, and I say, listen, look at this context, and look at this, and, and Paul's not talking about homosexual relationships. He's talking about you know, polygamous homosexual relationships when he writes about these things in the New Testament, not not monogamous relationships. Um, I find those not to be convincing at all. I find I do not believe I would not affirm someone into membership um, that had those views. Um, I would certainly try to be as winsome as possible, but I certainly would would have. um, Well, there is no requirement that you affirm somebody into membership who has views different from those of the church you're pastoring. And depending on how you're, I mean, no, there's no requirement that anybody be accepted as an Advent Christian into another Advent Christian church and ministers into conferences. Um, I was ordained at the Prairie States Advent Christian Conference in Illinois. When I went to Florida, I was transferred to my Florida Advent Christian Conference. And when I came to West Virginia, the West Virginia Advent Christian Conference refused to give me a license. That's done in the Advent Christian church. I have to pause. Wait, I have to pause for a minute because Brian just said something so good. I have to respond. The original Christians did have the Bible. They had the whole Old Testament. So this idea that there were Christians without scripture is nonsense. It's total nonsense. Uh, But I want want to... There were Christians who didn't possess copies. 
Sure, sure, but but the idea of Christianity without Scripture is silly. It's 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 not something to be taken seriously. Right. I'm sure he'll I'm sure he'll he'll respond and tell me what he was really saying. But if but my my point my point goes to if we're not gonna hold firmly to any doctrines, why do we choose to hold firmly only to um, something like homosexuality? I can answer that. Because if you study what the early church considered to be doctrines, none of these theoretical concepts that we argue about play any part in it. Every time the word doctrine comes up in the Bible and in the, se in the second century writings, it has to do with moral standards. The true doctrine of the Bible is thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the doctrine that they insisted on Christians holding to in the first century. But John, you just said that Paul wrote to the Jews that they didn't have to follow the law. So you yeah. just went, <laughs> where, where are you getting this from? They either we either follow the law or don't follow the law. Oh, no, they say we don't have to follow all those other rules and regulations, but the 10 commandments in particular, nine of them, because the fourth one was never repeated in the New Testament. But these things that were repeated in the New Testament as commands of God that were moral, things that had to do with our behavior, that was what the early church considered to be doctrine. They did not use the term doctrine to talk about theoretical ideas about eschatology or about soteriology or about homardiology or anthropology or any of those ologies. For the early church, morality was doctrine. And that's why there's a difference between accepting as a fellow Advent Christian, somebody who doesn't hold to the Trinity or the pre-existence of Christ or whatever particular view of eschatology happens to be popular in your wing, versus accepting somebody as a fellow Advent Christian who blatantly refuses to live the way the early Christians believed that a Christian should live. So were the early Christians infallible? No, but they understood the Bible a lot better than we do. We're going. We're starting. We're starting to dance around each other again. I, yeah. I, I want to try to get a little bit, a little bit more to the center again. Hold on, I have to respond to Brian now. Uh, are you a Christian? Eighty-one hundred. What do you have in your hand for Scripture? Nothing except a couple books circulating. Brian, I think you're talking about new. I think you're talking about New Testament because they most certainly had more than a few books circulating. Uh, I, I think you are you and I are using different terms. You're talking about New Testament. I'm talking about Scripture, which includes the you know the 39 books that were before the New Testament, which were which were essential in the beginnings of the Christian faith, which is why they're quoted so much in those letters. But I think you and I are, are sort of talking past each other. All right, let me let me try to bring this back to sort of some key center issues um eric does someone who believes in um the atoning sacrifice of jesus christ who is michael the archangel but they believe in him they confess faith in him they uh they they, they do all the stuff and and live moral lives do they have hope um in in that faith is there hope for them in the well, life the way the way you presented it the way you presented that, that statement is that yeah. the way I interpret it is that you're talking about a entirely different Jesus and their reliance upon their own morality. Um, Luke, you're a great guy, as is John. Um, far better men than I am, that is for sure. 
but I, I know this. You both, including myself, are entirely depraved in our our hearts lust after um, all sorts of sin in this world. If we are judged based on our morality, we are up the creek without a paddle. Mm-hmm. Um, it is Christ only in his sacrifice, in his work on the cross, in his saving grace and mercy by by raising dead men to life, dead men and women, that is. Mm-hmm. That's what saves. And, and to believe in a Christ that is not the Christ of the Bible, but this fictitious um, Jesus is Michael, the archangel, mm-hmm. you believing you're confessing, not Romans 10, nine, Jesus, you are confessing a different Jesus, which is the same reason why I don't consider the doctrines of the Roman Catholic church. I don't consider Roman Catholics in a sense, Christians. Um, although there are Christians in the Roman Catholic church for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, again, doctrine doesn't save Christ does. But mm-hmm. what they teach is a different gospel. They teach a works-based salvation, which again, although I consider Arminians brothers in Christ, my grave concern for them is that they work entirely too hard for their salvation, and it's a different gospel. You you, you always manage to scare up more rabbits than we have time to shoot. Uh, John, I'm going to ask you the question. I'd like you to attempt to answer only the question that I asked. So someone who confesses faith in Jesus Christ, who, who they believe is Michael the Archangel, and his atoning sacrifice, and live moral lives that bear the fruit of that faith, do they have hope in the life to come because of that faith? If they believe that Michael the Archangel died for their sins, then they're not putting their trust in Jesus. Okay. All right. Well, good. I'm um, glad we agree. <laughs> and I, I'm not surprised by that answer. That question came from, and it came from a serious misunderstanding of Jehovah's Witness teaching. Mm-hmm. which is that when Michael the Archangel appears as a character in Daniel's vision, and perhaps also in the Revelation, that character, Michael the Archangel, is a symbol representing Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses actually teach. They do not teach that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Mm-hmm. They teach that Michael the Archangel, as used in those two passages of Scripture, is a symbol for Jesus. Right. So, that, that, believing that, doesn't rule them out of being a Christian. Right. So, so good. You, you answered the question the way that I thought you would, but we're also now starting to get to the question I really wanted to ask. Um, Eric, do you consider, do you consider Mormons and Jehovah's witnesses brothers in the Lord since they believe in Christ for salvation? Not even close. Okay. John, same question. Uh, It would be easier for me to see a Jehovah's witness as being a brother in the Lord in that what you really have there is an Advent Christian who went bad because of not being taught well, founding mm-hmm. his own church. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mormons, I would have a, a much more difficult time because this is a guy who believed he saw a vision of a physical being who identified himself as God the Father. And right off the bat, I know there's something wrong with that because John 4.24 says God is a spirit. Mm-hmm. So I, I do have a question. How do we, so, because uh, one of the big mantras within Advent Christendom, and, and I've even seen this in, in different church um, constitutions and whatnot, that the only test of fellowship isn't profession of faith, but is actually Christian morality. But mm-hmm. my, my, my question is, what is Christian morality? Because I have not quite found that. It could be that I'm an amoral person. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> the cigars. Is it the well? I was, you know, I came from coming from New England. I'd heard many other churches say you can't be a Christian and imbibe in alcohol or or tobacco. Um, you can't watch movies and play cards. 
Um, I I enjoy cards. I love cigars. An Advent Christian would not be able to say you can't indulge in tobacco because he can't find the word tobacco in his Bible. <laughs> well, if it was in the Bible, then you know, well, no wine's in the Bible, so we can certainly partake in that. That's right. We can talk about the wine, and we can have a good argument amongst Advent Christians about what it means when Paul said to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake, or that Jesus had a cup of wine that he passed around. We can get into the Greek, and we can start talking about that. Hold, hold on, though. Hold on, though. This is this is where I start to get lost in this idea of only Bible words for Bible uh, uh, ideas. And I'm I'm a big Bible language guy. I sometimes Eric and I disagree because because I I put maybe less gravity in some of the theological terms that he does. However, if we're gonna take this thing to its literal end, the Bible only speaks about wine. It has says nothing about rum or vodka or other kinds of liquor. It says nothing whatsoever about beer. There is strong drink but it seems to me if we're gonna if we're gonna take this idea to its logical end there's actually nothing we can say about most things at all because i can't find the word in the bible that doesn't mean the bible doesn't speak to it well i I think it speaks a lot less clearly and so it requires a lot more uh you know thought and discussion and comparison of beliefs with a, a generosity to each other's ability to think differently when you come to stuff that isn't specifically mentioned in the Bible. But when you come to stuff that is specifically mentioned in the Bible, like homosexual behavior, when it says not to sleep with a man in the same way that you sleep with a woman, that's pretty clear. And I don't see how Christians can disagree with it. So I find people who disagree with what the Bible says on issues like that to be less acceptable to me to understand them as Christians. But when it comes to issues like the Trinity, where the word Trinity is not in the Bible and no specification of it is spelled out, I feel a lot more generous to say you've got your view and I've got mine. We can all get together and worship the same God, even if we disagree about technicalities involving his internal constitution, if you will. Just as long as they're not gay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, like, well, let's face it. Be, and, and, and they've, I changed that. The of, they've changed the meanings of words so much, I don't even know what they mean anymore. When I was a kid, <laughs> gay meant brightly colored and happy. When well, I like brightly. I like brightly. But, I'm talking about the same her, hermeneutical process, right? So if you go through the same, if you, right. But if someone challenges you from the Bible and says homosexuality is okay, where, where, where did it say that? I don't think it does, but I also don't think it says that God that that God is three individual gods. I also don't think it, it, it is the Trinity. I don't think the Bible's the I believe the Bible is quite explicit. I find it from the Old Testament through the New Testament that there is a Trinitarian God and as the God that we serve. So to suggest that, well, if someone makes an argument from the Bible that the Trinity is not real, that God exists differently than the way that you and I believe he does, um, but they to, to accept that argument, but not accept the argument that someone would make, well, let me, let's look at scripture and, and let me tell you why this doesn't mean what you think it means, which is essentially what someone who's non-Trinitarian is saying to me. And for me to reject that argument is is truly, it, 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 it's not logical. I mean, I'm being a hypocrite. Exactly the same thing about you. They have a whole string of verses 
that say that there's only one God. And then they say, every time you start talking about the Trinity, you're denying that verse that says there's only one God. Uh, I am Jehovah, and there is no other, saith the Lord God. <laughs> you know, they, they quote verses like that all the time. And, but, but, uh, and they but, don't but, say that Jesus is a separate God. They do not say that. I've never heard a non-Trinitarian say that. They say that Jesus is the Son of God, and they said, use any, any grammatical dictionary, they'll say to me, and find where someone's son is the same as his father. Yeah, but John, this is, this is, this is exactly, I think, what's at the heart of this is we use – so we talked earlier about how people can believe the same thing while using different language, right? Yes. We, yeah, right. But what about people who use the same language but believe different things? Because oh, that's then, Mormons. That's your that, Mormons. They believe in Jesus Christ, the right. one the son of God the Father that appeared to Joseph Smith. But that's exactly what's at the heart, at least for me, that's exactly what's at the heart of this that concerns me is if, if we take this view that I'm just going to believe what the Bible says, but we, we don't exercise any judgment or authority in saying what it means, then we can use exactly the same language and believe none of the same things. Now, that's not the case for most Evan Christians that we believe none of the same things, right? Mostly when we use the same language, we mean the same things. But when it comes to something that I think is pretty important, if you're talking about Christianity, like the nature of Christ, and you say, well, we're, they use the same language or they quote the same verses, but we mean different things, doesn't that matter? You know, you've... you've, you've come to really a question that deals with the very heart of the concept of creedalism and that is if we're going to have a creed the idea of the creed is not to present the entire teaching of the whole bible uh the idea of the creed is to say here are some beliefs we drew from the bible that we think are essential right they're important so a creedalist has this has this slogan in essentials unity in non-essentials liberty in all things charity I think right. it was Augustine of Hippo who wrote that. The problem that happens, in my experience, observation, and studying history, is mm -hmm. that everybody who sits down to say what things are essential right. comes up with a different list. Hmm. So, you know, if we had a thing in the Bible that said, by the way, uh, here in Hezekiah chapter 2, it says, the following doctrines are essential. The doctrine mm -hmm. of this, the doctrine of that, the doctrine of that. If we had that in the Bible... Uh, we'd be able to say, okay, we have to agree on all these essentials, but we don't have that. And every time the Church of Jesus Christ has tried to say, here are the essentials, the church has split into differing groups. Mm -hmm. And we argue with each other and say, no, I think you've got a thing on that list that's not an essential, it's a non-essential. Or right. I think you failed to put a thing on the list that is essential, and you should put it on. So you yeah. have the Church of England with um, 39 articles, and then they decided to cut it to 42 or whatever, I mean, different numbers of articles, because these things are essential. And so when we say, oh, it's important that the Christians agree on the essentials, mm -hmm. uh, John Stott and David Edwards wrote a book called The Essentials. Well, I laugh at that title, because who are they to say which things are essential and which are not? But we have this big argument going on. It's not just an argument about whether God is Trinity or not Trinity. Mm -hmm. We have an argument about whether that argument is essential or yes. not. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. That And Eric, this is where you have been like a, a lifeguard waiting for someone to drown, ready 
to to swoop in with you with your uh with your raft give us now because this is great we got to sort of the heart of the disagreement i love what john just said it's not just about the theology itself it has to do with the priorities of different parts right. of theology right. so eric give us the positive case for creedalism the positive case for creedalism well seeing as how we have like 10 minutes left <laughs> um I'll, I'll say it like this the, the creeds are a gift to the church now when i say creeds i'm referring to the ecumenical creeds okay that's what i mean by creeds um and when i and when i refer to confessions i'm meaning the reformed confessions um, there are several different ones but they all stem from largely the Westminster Confession of Faith and, and kind of from there, you know, because the Westminster Confession of Faith is Presbyterian, obviously, and the London Baptist Confession of 1689 is, is, is a Reformed Baptist one, which is what I subscribe to for the most part, um, along with the Savoy Declaration. In fact, um, you can probably email someone over at Bix and they, they did one in 1990. They amended the Savoy Declaration. Yeah, that's Beautiful statement. I I um, read some of the confessions as part of my devotional time as a way to um, inculcate or or, or li lift my heart towards the Lord as it plainly um, describes who He is and what He's done. They are a beautiful gift for a number of things. So the ecumenical creeds, I think, and that's you know the the. Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Nicene Creed. Those are those are ones that pretty much everybody agrees to that these are the essentials, except for the non-Trinitarians who have been anathematized <laughs> since 325 AD. I mean, I, and I know Paul. Yeah, like, you Palma, the Arian Creed, didn't you? Palma mentioned how she can't imagine saying to her friends and family in West Virginia who are non-Trinitarian that they are not Christians. Man, I feel for you. Like I like I like here's where the pastoral sense comes in, right? Where our theology, um, how we dispense of it, should be guided by emotions, but our emotions do not control our theology, and our theology is controlled by nothing less than the Bible, and and really the creeds and the confessions are simply a plain articulation of what we believe the Bible teaches. That's mm -hmm. it. That's simply what it is. So our declaration of principles um, is included in that, the statement of faith. I think it needs to be more robust. Uh, John, I'm sure you wish that there was nothing, um, just uh, just Jesus. Uh, I, I don't know. Just give me a Bible. But you can make, and we see this today. I mean, look at look at the lack of training that we have done with young people in the church as they flock to churches like Bethel Church, who, te who teach extra biblical doctrines like grave sucking <laughs> i mean sucking anointing up from dead people why is this because we have totally rejected orthodox theology and have said you know what we just you just need to know the jesus you don't know very well no you need to know jesus because he has saved you and loves you and purchased you with his blood so now spend a lifetime learning about who he is, because the more you learn about your wife, the greater your love for her is. I've been married for 10 years, which I'm sure is a fraction for how long you and Mary have been married. Um, and uh, your lovely wife, John. Um, I've met her, but I assume she's lovely because you are. Um, but, I, you know, the more I get to learn who my wife is, Oh my goodness, the more I realize how great a treasure she is from the Lord. So 
that the more I learn, like I know a fraction about Jesus Christ compared to probably what the apostles understood, what many theologians and scholars throughout the history of the church, and a fraction of what I will know at Christ's soon return when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. What a glorious day that will be. But until then, I want to learn as much about him as possible so that my love for him can grow. And I want to share that love with others and teach them right doctrine so that their hearts would be formed and shaped by the Holy Spirit through the teaching of the word. I got I to gotta inter interject something here real quick. John just said he's been married 47 years, so I'm realizing you're probably not 49 years old. Technically, that'll be next Tuesday. 46 <laughs> years minus uh, one week. Okay. Wow. Can I say something about that? Yes. You know, what is it is so wrong with our modern culture that practices sex before marriage and sometimes sex outside of marriage, even while marriage is going on, and then divorce and remarriage and again and again and again? What is so wrong with that? Is it, is it all just because the Bible says so? Is that what's really wrong with it? Yeah, that's one thing that's wrong with it. But the other thing that's wrong with it is those young people are missing out on what Mary and I have. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, wives are treasure, the great helpmates to Adam. Um, it is a beautiful thing. W marriage is a beautiful thing. But to the to the creeds and the confession confessions, John, I personally, um, you know, some might think that I want to come down with some draconian hand uh, and, and usher in. I have joked with other pastors. We just need to adopt an amended version of the 1689 London Baptist Confession or the uh, Savoy Declaration. John, as much as I think um, our, we have differences, of course, with soteriology. Well, we those churches that already have those confessions. They do. Why do we need to have a separate church? Um, well, I'm not saying we do need a separate church, but uh, well, what I'm, what I'm saying is. They have a separate church. They wanted to go to the other churches, but they were kicked out. Well, you know, just because, just because something happens in history doesn't mean we have to affirm it as the right thing, right? So I don't think it's personally right, and I think we all agree. If someone comes to the comes to the biblical conclusion of conditional immortality, we don't think that it's wise to kick them out. Just like I don't think it's wise to kick someone out if they if they um, those other churches do. Okay, so they do. I mean, I'm not like if I'm not talking to them, I'm, I'm talking to us. I'm not having a conversation. Why is it important to me right now? Yeah, I, think also, I think we also make a boogeyman out of some of these other denominations. <laughs> Nathaniel Bickford, who is an avid watcher of the podcast, saw, uh, I believe he saw ordination within the Presbyterian denomination because at the time there were no places for him to pastor here in the Advent Christian Church. Mm -hmm. So, so he sought ordination. He was allowed to be a member in good standing. He was allowed to teach Sunday school, but because of his conditional immortality, he wasn't allowed to be a pastor. God bless him. That's their decision. Our Listen, their loss, our gain. Um, you know, me personally, I'm here in the Advent Christian denomination because I knew that it was going to be uh, troublesome for me because um, I came from the Southern Baptist as a conditionalist. To, to be able to be a pastor, and I do, started developing wonderful relationships. All but right. that doesn't mean that the status quo is necessarily the best or right thing. Hold on, hold on. We got we, we, we to find a way to sort of come toward the end. So I think there is one more thing that, that we need to discuss before we close the show. I'm going to get to in a minute. Brian, I don't think that John was saying that 
divorce in every case is unjustified. He was talking about the culture of repeated divorce where people treat marriage like a trinket or, or a business contract rather than a covenant. So I don't, I don't think that's what he was trying to say. Uh, but that's not our subject. I think there's one more question we need to address. Our subject. <laughs> our, our subject is, should the Advent Christian Church adopt a creed? Yes. Is it? And my answer is no, because to do so will destroy the Advent Christian Church. Okay. It will make it much smaller and less effective in the mission that God has called it to. And I particular am thankful that I have survived um, the Trinity Wars that have been going on at least since I've been involved in this denomination, mm -hmm. uh, and probably even before that. I'm glad I've survived it because now at age 70, mm -hmm. if, if the denomination breaks up into a bunch of little pieces because we've all got separate creeds and we're all insisting that we won't fellowship with anybody that doesn't sign our creed, I don't really have to join any one of them. I can just retire. And I can just be an independent person who just teaches the Bible as I see fit on, on uh, Facebook if anybody wants to bother to check my page out. But if I were younger and I needed a job to support my family, I'd be in big trouble if the Advent Christian Church adopted a creed that I couldn't sign because I don't know any other church that I could join. So let me let me let me ask you guys one more thing that the comments. Eric, I love when the comment section turn their guns away from me and fire on you. It's one of the great joys of this show. I, really think, I think it's important to address John. Are you giving me a chance to address what John just said? No, because we don't have time. We got to talk about one more thing. We're no, going to bring it back on. I want to affirm what John just said in this in this sense. Um, I think it would be unwise to bind people's conscience unnecessarily to tertiary doctrines. Um, I find it incredibly difficult to understand how how the doctrine of God is not. We can we can disagree on many of we might be able to disagree on what some of the essentials are, and, and I think you and I would have some agreement there, John. But I think who God is is essential i i mean that if there is nothing more central um to the christian faith than who god is then I, then i don't know what you ever could call essential nevertheless i agree i agree yeah. in that sense with you john that i don't want anyone to buy have their conscience bound to to something that is not essential i also um, don't want to see you retire out of out of frustration or because the denomination's fractured uh, I think it's quite clear the denomination is already quite fractured. We just don't talk about it. Um, but I think there are oh, ways to bring that together. I th well, you know, potato, tomato. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I, I think there's a way to bring it together and still have bonds of unity. I think you're a great brother in the Lord. There are so many things that you, that, that you can teach me that I can learn from you. Um, but likewise, uh, there are probably some things that you could learn from other brothers that might disagree with you as well in on this topic because it is crucial. It, good doctrine, true doctrine, is crucial to the life of the church. Do we need a creed, brother? We need a confession, man. We don't need a creed. We need a confession. Now, Bigford would tell you we need a statement of faith, uh, which is smaller than a which is smaller than a confession. But I would, I would settle with that. I would settle. I am not immovable. I I will uh, I will say maybe okay. We don't need a confession. We can stick with a statement of faith. But we need something more robust than 
what we have because what we have is quite um, anemic. Okay, I'm, I'm Luke Cope's dad. John is going to John is rival. John is going to respond, and then we're moving on. John, speak what your need to quote Luke Luke Copeland's father is a revival. That's what we need. More, far more than we need a confession, a creed, a statement of faith, a doctrinal list. We need to go out and win people to faith in Jesus Christ and build a church that honors him instead of just trying to, you know, keep ourselves together. Uh, both and, John. It doesn't have to be either or. Eric, I'm gonna, I don't even have the power to do this. I'm about to kick you off of your own show. Okay. We need it. We need to. We need to address one more question. Okay. okay. We've. We've done a. I think we did a great job today of actually getting to sort of what was at the heart of the disagreement. And I appreciate you guys being willing to sort of go through the exercise with me so that we could get to where the real disagreement was. Now, having having identified that, there is one more question that I think needs to be answered. We've got six minutes to answer it, so you'll each give your response, and we'll have to end the show. We'll have to do this again sometime. Okay. Um, here, here's the deal. I think we made it very clear today that much of what's at the heart of this disagreement is not even the theology itself. It's the issue of can we identify theological essentials, right? And so here's here's the question that I think we need to answer before we close. And I'm going to let each of us give an answer because I've done lots of asking questions. I want to answer one too. Um, can those in our denomination who have said, yes, we can identify theological essentials, and those who say, no, we can't or shouldn't, can those two groups continue to coexist as one body? No. So that's the question. Who I know the answer I'm going to give. Huh? Who gets to answer that first? Uh, we're we're going we're gonna to go Eric, Luke, John, so that John will get the last word since he's the guest. Wonderful. Um, I think that you can have people, I think we can coexist if we agree that there are essentials, but there are variations with a lot of commonality to the essentials. I do not believe that we will coexist if we continue in the sense that, well, we think there are people who, who do believe there are essentials and those who believe there are not essentials. So the thing that I have heard many times from the non-credalists is that um, part of the Advent Christian heritage is the non-credalism. It's, it is the choice, right? It's the idea that we're not going to identify essentials that are binding uh, other, other than the Bible um, and, and basically Christian morality. This, this to me, I think it's tough because obviously from the perspective of the non-credalist, the answer is, of course, yes, of course we can coexist. The trouble is that from the perspective of the credalists, um, I don't think that we can. And it's not because we don't mostly believe the same things. It's because when when someone, uh, uh, um, let's say, applies for or, or, or seeks a position of authority in a church, and there is a credulist and a non-credulist, even if they believe the same things, someone who says there are certain points of doctrine that are essential, and someone who says we can't or shouldn't identify those essentials, I don't see how those two people can continue in a local body. They can still be brothers in the Lord. They can still minister with each other, but they can't function within one body. And so 
there is, I think, a, a fair question here that the non-credalists would always answer yes to, that credalists, I think, have to answer no to. And that's not rejecting everyone who disagrees with us, but it is identifying the simple reality that those two views are not compatible within the functioning of a local body. And so there are people that I can call brother, right, that I don't think that I could co-pastor with. And I think there are some connotations on a regional conference and even denominational level that, um, that apply when it comes to that conflict. That's put very well. Yeah. Um, six minute summary. Two minutes. We're checking about 90 seconds. 90 seconds. Um, non credalism was in the original DNA of the Advent Christian Church as an organization. Uh, during the days when non credalism flourished, the Advent Christian Church flourished the best that it ever did. Not that it ever did very much, but it did what it did up until creedalism began to make inroads into the Advent Christian denomination, and we started arguing with each other instead of evangelizing the lost. And as a result, we are now at the level of saying, can we even continue to exist as an organization? And the creedalists are saying, at least this is what I hear them saying, no, we can't continue to exist as an organization unless the non-creedalists give up their non-creedalism and accept our creed, whereas the non-creedalists are saying, no, we will not give up our non-creedalism, and if you want a creed, you can just as easily leave, and we'll continue on without you on the track that we've been on for 100 years, which is decline. So, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's one of those questions that, that seems almost impossible to answer, and I'm sure the same was felt by the United States of America in the 1860s when the argument over slavery um, and the argument over states' rights versus federal rights devolved to the point where we took up the guns and started shooting each other. Um, in 1863, right after the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, somebody might have asked, uh, can the United States of America possibly have a future? Um, and probably the answer that was given was only if one of the sides wins. Hmm. And as a matter of fact, that's what happened. Yeah. One, one of the sides won. And with an iron boot, it trampled down the other side, uh, and the United States of America somehow survived and continued to grow. So I can't predict the future. In fact, uh, as an Advent Christian, I have never expected that there's much future to predict. <laughs> it's coming any minute now. Why are we arguing about this stuff when what we should be doing is telling lost people how to get saved, which is to put their faith in Jesus, Romans 10, 9, believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead. The more people we tell that to, the more likely to believe it, the more that believe it, the better for our denomination. And I don't think we need to worry about this stuff. All right, good. So we're, we're stopping. We're not no more add-ons. No well, yes, I was just going to thank John for, for joining <laughs> us. I mean, John, it has been a pleasure. It really has. Um, it has. It's been you know, fun. I, I hope we can do it again soon sometime. And you know, Already. Um, Maybe yeah. on another subject. Yeah, or I, I think I think this, either another subject or if we were to do something like this again, I think what I learned today is we need to narrow the field. Because if we just say non-credalism generally, there's too much that gets wrapped in. I think, and even not even with you, John, just with anyone else we discuss this issue with in the future, I think we need to maybe in the future 
try to pick a more particular piece of that or we can focus and hone in on so that we don't get lost in the peripheral stuff. You're the one yeah. I, hey, just, just one thing, because I do think this is incredibly important to the conversation we just had. Mm-hmm. Um, not once did we talk about, um, because Brian keeps bringing this up, um, not once did I or any other creedalist in this conversation suggest to throw out non-creedalists in the denomination. That is not that is not my desire. Um, and anybody and anybody who is on in my camp that that desires stronger conviction, um, you know, certainly, I would rebuke them for wanting that same thing. So, uh, for wanting to to throw people out, that's not the case. Um, so I just want to clear that okay. up. I, I appreciate that, Eric, um, because uh, it's just like some of the stuff that we had in our discussion about trinitarian and non-trinitarian views. Oftentimes, one side is not hearing clearly what the other side is saying, and they're fighting against a straw man. So I may be fighting against a straw man when I say the creedalists want to throw um, the non-creedalists out, or they want to throw the non-Trinitarians out, or something like that. Uh, Maybe. Uh, I say maybe because I've had actual conversations with actual creedalist Trinitarians who have actually told me that if they don't get rid of the non-Trinitarians in this denomination, they're going to leave it. Well, uh, that's, that's also a whole other topic for another day because that's, that's different. Let's, let's do this. First, let's thank John. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for being willing to sort of uh, – for being willing to step into, into, into the frying pan because I think you knew you were outnumbered when you came on here and you came on anyways. We appreciate I thought you were being neutral. I tried, I tried pretty hard, but I don't know if I was successful. Okay. Well, I think you did a good job. I thought uh, you did an excellent job. You mostly tried to keep us on the questions, and I thought that was good because we could yeah. just go wild if we're just slugging at each other. Um, I, I also want to thank uh, the people in the comment section. I mean, you guys are so lively. You make these conversations fun, and I appreciate your engagement with these things. Theology matters, and so it's worth talking about this stuff. Uh, I don't think we solved every conflict or disagreement within the the denomination today, but I think we did come to a better understanding of one another, and I consider that worth our time. Hey, God bless you guys. God bless the listeners. We love you. Take care. We will see you next week. Um, By the way, keep an eye out on our Facebook page. We are going to be sharing... an actual, uh, a special, a special uh, show that we did actually before Luke and I did before coming on the air today. It's going to be on our banter club, Patreon page, but it's going to be free to everyone. So you're going to kind of get a glimpse of, of the kind of content that uh, the banter club received. So God bless you. Take care. We'll see you soon.